everybody. How's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? I'm doing pretty great. Lisa and I are at the Oregon coast right now, which is nice. I realized just now that what we're doing is kind of the opposite of a staycation because we're both still working while we're here. So it's a go away and work or a gork. And I got to say, so far, I'm having a lovely gork. Incidentally, gork was also what I named the stuffed dragon that I got when I was five. Normally, if I included a piece of information like that, I would probably try to tie it back to what I was talking about before. But you know what? Fuck it. I'm on Gork. And also, we've got a heck of a lot of comic that we're going to cover today. Today, we're going to be looking at the third annual of Secret Origins. It's written by George Perez. It is 66 pages long, and it attempts to summarize, and in some cases retcon, all of the events from the first Teen Titans series, all of the events from the first new Teen Titans series, and all of the events so far from the second new Teen Titans series. So I think we probably ought to get into that, huh? Without any further ado, Let's, uh, do this. In a weird turn of events, I think all of the synopsis rhymes that are submitted right now are related to the Defenders. So, uh, you know what? Let's get to Gork. Secret Origins Annual, number three, May 1989. Pieces of the Puzzle. Written by George Perez, drawn by Tom Grummet and Grant Meme, and Irv Novick, and Michael Bear, and Trevor Von Eden, and Dave Cockrum, and Kevin McGuire, and Mark Bright, and Colleen Doran. Inked by George Perez, and Anthony Van Bruggen, and Ty Templeton, and Michael Bear, and Trevor Von Eden, and Larry Malstead, and Carl Kiesel, and Ian Aiken, and Brian Garvey, and Romeo Tangal, and Dick Giordano. Lettered by John Costanza, Colored by Adrienne Roy, and edited by Mark Wade. Previously in the Teen Titans. 25 years of actual time, and I think about 7 years of comic book time ago, Aqualad, Robin, and Kid Flash teamed up to save the town of Hatton Corners from Brom Stick, a.k.a. Mr. Twister, a creepy middle-aged guy with a magic stick who dressed like he was giving tours of Colonial Williamsburg. Soon after that adventure, the trio of teens reunited and were joined by Wonder Girl, forming the group known as the Teen Titans. Over the years, the gang has had a bunch of adventures and roster changes. They broke up, got back together, moved into a discotheque on Long Island, broke up again, got back together again, changed their name to the new Teen Titans, moved into a giant T-shaped skyscraper, went to space a few times, and changed their name to the new Titans. During the most recent of their trips to space, Wonder Girl got a newly retconned origin story, a new costume, and started going by the name Troya. When they got back to Earth, Nightwing learned that Jason Todd, the kid who had replaced him as Robin, had been murdered. Beast Boy's stepdad, Steve Dayton, the fifth richest and therefore fifth most trustworthy man in America, insisted that his stepson quit the team until his grades improved. 
and the gang-fired, precocious, late-season cast edition Danny fucking Chase for being a dipshit that nobody liked. Hooray! Also, Gadzooks! How will Dick react to the death of his young successor? Now that Wonder Girl has had her origin retconned and gotten a new name, which hero will receive this treatment next? And, with no fewer than 18 artists condensing and retconning 180-plus issues of backstory into 66 pages, will this issue make any damn sense? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so... Well, among other things, he buys my second least favorite model of Camaro. Mal Duncan, and, amazingly, kinda. I mean, it probably helps to have already read the 180-plus issues of source material, but still, it's impressive. A nebbishy dude with glasses and a mustache drops Starfire off outside her apartment. The spicy space princess embraces the guy and is like, Thanks for the hot date, Arnie. You want to come upstairs? Arnie says he has a stomachache and isn't feeling up to it, and speeds off in his convertible IROC Z. Hmm. Some dudes that are hanging out outside note that Arnie is the fourth guy Starfire has gone out with in as many nights. Starfire heads upstairs, disappointed that she was unable to entice Arnie to spend the night with her. She has little time to dwell on her failure to seduce the owner of an aesthetically unappealing sports car, though, because once she enters her apartment, she is surprised to find that she is not alone. Standing in the living room is a distraught, red-haired occasional psychic and former Teen Titan. Hi, Lilith! Last time we saw Lilith, she had just found out that she was a Greek god and had moved to Mount Olympus, but I'm pretty sure that story got retconned away and never happened. Lilith says she's looking for Dick. Starfire is like, I'm going to assume you mean Grayson, not just like, in general, but either way, I'm fresh out. Dick moved out a little while ago. Lilith is like, well, we need to find him. He's in grave danger. Meanwhile, across town, Dick Grayson takes off his Arnie disguise and gets ready for bed. I guess for reasons that he doesn't go into, ever since he moved out of their shared apartment, Dick has been dressing up like different people and going out on dates with Starfire. Uh, okay. Maybe he figures that because the rest of the gang is so bad at having secret identities, he's just gonna have enough for all of them? Yeah, that's probably it. He puts on some pajama bottoms and takes some sleeping pills that were prescribed to him by the psychiatrist he's been seeing ever since Jason's death. He starts to brush his teeth, but when he looks in the mirror, a mysterious figure in a hooded pink robe looks back at him and is like, You should quit because you're a failure. Jeez. Does one of the spicy poop rankers of Hive have some kind of a vendetta against dental hygiene? If so, his plan doesn't work, because Dick keeps on brushing his teeth. After a second or two, the image fades. Take that, cavity creep. Dick is a little freaked out by the apparition, and considers calling his psychiatrist, but it's pretty late and he doesn't want to bother her with something as trivial as experiencing unprovoked malignant hallucinations. So. He just goes to bed. As soon as he falls asleep, the pink-robed apparition Dennis quades his way into Dick's dreamscape and starts berating him again. Nightwing finds himself alone with the figure in a strangely familiar nightmarish void realm. The headboard of his bed is replaced with a novelty tombstone engraved with an epitaph calling Dick a loser. Ouch! 
Dick's pink-robed tormentor is like, The tombstone's got a point. You suck. Dick is like, Nuh-uh. The ghostly jerk is like, Yaha, and to prove my point, I'm going to make you relive all of your adventures as a Teen Titan and tell you how much you fucked each of them up. Sound good? Dick is like, um, no. The ghost jerk is like, well, too bad. Here we go. Suddenly, Dick finds himself back in Hatton Corners, teaming up with Aqualad and Kid Flash for the first time. He experiences a truncated version of the events that we covered like a billion years ago, way back in the first episode of Teen Titan Wasteland. The former Robin berates himself for the minor mistakes he made during that adventure, but overall, feels pretty good about how he and his fellow teens comported themselves. When they get to the end where the mayor condescendingly thanks them for their help, the ghost jerk is like, See? You guys totally sucked. Dick is like, What are you talking about? That was rad. Aqualad saved Hatton Corners, and me and Kid Flash were there too. We totally beat up that Brom stick, weirdo. The ghost trick gets all huffy and is like, yeah, whatever. Together, you three superheroes nearly killed a middle-aged dumpus in a tri-corner hat. Whoop-de-fucking-do. Your second adventure wasn't so fun, was it? Dick is like, the time we rode go-bikes and fought a giant disembodied ear by playing transistor radios at it? Yeah, that was pretty fun. The ghost jerk is like, No, that was your second adventure in terms of publication date. I'm talking about your second adventure according to DC's in-universe chronology. The one that got retconned in in the last issue of the first Teen Titans series? Dick is like, That's pretty meta. Can you refresh my memory? The ghost jerk is like, it's the one that started with you coming home to the Batcave, and Batman acted like a jerk and smacked you around. Dick is like, yeah, unfortunately, you're going to need to be a lot more specific. The ghost jerk is like, oh, right. It was the time he and the rest of the Justice League got mind-controlled by an evil alien who made them be jerks and steal stuff. Dick is like, oh, that second adventure. Right. Suddenly, Dick finds himself reliving the adventure from Teen Titans number 53. He caught Batman stealing stuff, so Batman beat him up. When Dick compared notes with Kid Flash and Aqualad, he found that they had had similar experiences with their respective mentors. Then Wonder Girl and Speedy showed up and offered to help them take down the newly evil Justice League. So they did! Hooray! Once the enterprising teens had beaten up their surrogate superhero dads, they found that the Justice League had fallen under the control of an ugly pile of eyeballs, tentacles, and bad vibes named the Antithesis. The gang beat up this Hegel-inspired hodgepodge of nonsense, which snapped their elder superheroes out of their abusive criminal ways and restored them to their previous levels of well-intentioned irresponsibility and negligence. Hooray! The teens decided to form a permanent team. Donna proposed the name Titans, while Aqualad suggested the modifier Teen. And thus, the Teen Titans was born. Immediately after the group formed, Speedy quit. Hooray! When Dick finishes reliving all of this, the ghost jerk is like, See? That time you guys totally sucked. Dick is like, Seriously? We beat up the Justice League and saved them from an interdimensional shit heel. We were awesome. Aqualad got to punch Green Arrow in the dick. Like, two-handed punch. 
the ghost jerk is like, okay, that was pretty cool. Bad example. But, but then after that, probably all the grown-up heroes laughed at you and said you were stupid idiots. Dick is like, really? Well, that was mean. The ghost jerk is like, yeah, and then there was that time when you guys met Beast Boy for the first time, and he was being mind-controlled, so he turned into an albino baboon and hypnotized everyone. Dick is like, yeah, what about it? The ghost jerk is like, well, after that, he wanted to join the team, but you wouldn't let him. He didn't suck nearly as much back then. Maybe if you would let him join, then he wouldn't have grown up to be such an asshole. Dick is like, Maybe. Hey, wait a minute, that wasn't our fault. We would have let him join, but his stepdad wouldn't sign the permission slip. The ghost jerk is like, Whatever. You guys sucked. You barely beat that giant robot lamprey eel you fought after Speedy rejoined the team. I forget, what did you guys call that adventure again? Dick is like, Monster bait. The ghost jerk is like, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't catch that. What, what was it again? Dick is like, monster bait, okay? The ghost jerk is like, <laughs> oh my god. Dick is like, okay, fine, we made some mistakes, but overall, we did okay. The ghost jerk seems to have disappeared. So Dick is unchaperoned as he sees reenactments of the time the Teen Titans teamed up with Russian hero Starfire. No relation who now goes by Red Star, and the time Donna got her first new costume. It seems a little odd that Donna's wardrobe change was a formative event in Dick Grayson's life, especially since stuff like fighting a giant robotic conquistador or the time Aqualad seduced the Loch Ness Monster didn't make the cut, but in his defense, it was a pretty good costume. The memory train's next stop is the time when the Titans were unable to prevent the violent death of Nobel Prize winner Dr. Arthur Swenson. Despite the fact that this story arc represents the first real failure on the part of the Titans, the ghost jerk, who has reappeared, is being surprisingly unjerky, asking Dick to please remember, and calling him by his first name for the first time in the story. Although, seeing as his first name is Dick, it's possible that the ghost jerk is still being a jerk. At the pink-robed individual's gentle insistence, Dick remembers how the Titans met Lilith, who was, at the time, an occasionally psychic go-go dancer. She warned them that they were going to open the doors of death. Soon after that, the Titans, who were hanging out with Hawk and Dove, went to a peace rally where Dr. Swenson was speaking. Violence erupted in the crowd, and while Robin was outside phoning the police, someone pulled out a gun. Hawk, Dove, Wonder Girl, Kid Flash, and Speedy all tried to wrest the gun away, but it went off and both Dr. Swenson and the gunman were killed. Oops. The Justice League showed up and yelled at all the Titans for a while and told them that they sucked. They forbid the Titans to use their powers or wear their costumes. Dick is like, Okay, yeah, I fucked that one up pretty bad. Y you got me there. The ghost jerk is like, Hey, no, don't be so hard on yourself. That wasn't your fault. Huh? The gang decided that even though they couldn't dress fancy and use superpowers, they didn't want to stop punching crime. Lilith joined the Titans, and they all put on gray jumpsuits. In their first jumpsuit adventure, the gang met Mal Duncan, who was super good at punching, and he joined the team. 
During Dick's recollection of their first meeting, his visual memory of Mal is briefly replaced with an emaciated cryptkeeper-looking version of Mal wearing a blue and black hood. Huh. Did Dick confuse Mal with Cloak from the Marvel comics? Cause that'd be pretty fucked up. I mean, he's known Mal a long time. Eventually, Dick figured out that Swenson's true killer was an NYPD sergeant who was secretly a member of a right-wing extremist group. The hooded voice starts being a prick again. Dick remembers confronting the murderous policeman and finding out that he had killed one of his own men to frame the Titans for murder. After that, the gang felt better and started wearing their costumes again. Dick's pajama-bottom-clad psyche briefly finds itself lying on the floor of the Titan's computer center trying to wake up an unconscious Mal. Then his mental image of himself tumbles into an open mouth of a giant image of Mal and into a recollection of what is probably the creepiest Teen Titans story ever. Probably. It's either this one or that time Wonder Girl murdered a pet cat with a tiny noose. Mm. Archie Manning, who may or may not have been Peyton Manning's dad, asked the Titans to help save his grandson Davy from some demons who were harassing him. Seems pretty straightforward. Only when they poked around the house a little bit, the gang found a baby's skeleton locked inside a chest. Oof. Dick came up with a theory that Davy must have died years ago while he was still an infant and then been replaced with a demon changeling. The Davy-looking demon had been killing people, including Davy's parents. So maybe Peyton Manning is dead? I mean, I guess that would explain his acting in those commercials. Dick explained all of this to probably Peyton Manning's dad, who accepted the information instantly. The elder Manning was like, Yeah, that makes sense. So, I should probably get out my rifle and go shoot that small child who looks like my grandson. Because he's really a demon? Most of the Titans were like, What? No, don't do that! But Dick was like, Yeah, seems like a good plan. So Archie Manning went out and shot the creature that looked like his grandson. The ghost jerk is like, What the fuck? You encouraged a guy to shoot a toddler? Or I thought I was the villain here. Dick is like, Hey, I knew that kid was a demon. I was like 80% sure. And it all worked out okay. Archie Manning left us everything he owned in his will. The ghost jerk is like, the fact that you personally profited from encouraging an old man to shoot a child does not make it better. I can't believe I have to explain that to you. Dick is like, I told you it was a demon. Probably. But the rest of the Titans seem to feel the same way you did. They never looked at me the same after that. We ended up breaking up for a while. The worst part is, there was a stipulation in the will that we only inherited the Manning estate if we stayed together. So, we didn't get the house after all. The ghost jerk is like, That's the worst part? What the fuck is wrong with you? The ghost jerk disappears in a puff of smoke, only to return a few seconds later and start acting nice again. They're like, Hey, uh, I'm sure you did what you thought was best. Dick is like, What gives? Are you trying to do some kind of good shadow and shrouded robed specter, bad shadow and shrouded robed specter thing? Because I don't think that's a thing. There isn't much time for Dick to dwell on his memory Sherpa's fluctuating disposition, though, because it's time for him to relive the events of Teen Titans number 42. The gang had been broken up for a while, and Mal had been doing some maintenance on the Titans' old headquarters, 
when he discovered that supervillainous nincompoop and terrible goatee haver Dr. Light was up to some bullshit. So Mal signaled the other Titans and they got back together. Dick is like, it sure is nice to see everyone again. But the ghost jerk is back to being mean and is like, Oh yeah? Was it nice when that stupid doofus Dr. Light kicked all your asses? Dick is like, No. After he beat up the Titans, Dr. Light took them to the Justice League satellite where he had already imprisoned the Flash. He left Mal behind because Dr. Light was a racist fuck who didn't consider Mal a real Titan. Mal took that personally and did what anyone in his position would do. He put on a spandex bodysuit with a blue hooded cape and tooted on the high-tech teleportation soprano saxophone that he and his super genius girlfriend had built. I mean, we've all been there. This device, which he called the Gabriel Horn, helped Mal, who was now using the superhero name Harold, bust the other Titans out of the hard light prison that they and the Flash were being held in. Together, they all beat the shit out of Dr. Light. Hooray! The ghost jerk is like, You guys all underestimated Mal because you're racist assholes. Dick is like, No, no, that wasn't it. It it was just that, um... Um... Actually, I can't think of a way to end this sentence. After they beat up Dr. Light, the Titans almost broke up again, but Wonder Girl convinced them not to. Instead, they all moved into a discotheque headquarters on Long Island, and Mal's aforementioned super genius girlfriend, Karen Beecher, joined the team as the high-flying hero Bumblebee. Hooray! The nice version of the ghost comes back, and in a weird twist, guides Dream Dick through a memory that he hadn't actually been present for. Huh. Dick finds himself witnessing the formation of the Titans' short-lived West Coast branch. Beast Boy, Golden Eagle, Hawk, Dove, Lilith, and a tennis pro named Betty Kane, who prior to the Crisis on Infinite Earths had gone by the name Bat-Girl, but whose alter ego has now been retconned to be Flame Bird, are hanging out in a burger joint. They had just teamed up to rescue a bunch of sailors from an aircraft carrier that started flying around for no apparent reason. Lilith explains to the group that she's pretty sure the guy responsible for levitating the ship was a powerful telepath named Mr. Esper, who had somehow managed to hijack Lilith's psychic powers. The assembled heroes all agreed that that was a bad thing, but weren't sure what to do about it, so they decided to consult the one person that they all respected, Dick Grayson. The nice ghost jerk is like, See? People like you. You're a good leader. Dick is like, Yeah, thanks. But then Mean Ghost Jerk comes back and is like, Shut up, you stupid idiot! You're bad and nobody likes you! That's why the team-up with the West Coast Titans was such a disaster. Dick is like, Hey, actually, that went okay for the most part. Ghost Jerk is like, Well, if it did, that's only because Wonder Girl was there to keep everyone from killing each other. She's great. Dick is like, Yeah, Donna's rad, but we all did a pretty good job. We found out that Mr. Esper was the same guy as a jerk named Captain Calamity who had been giving the East Coast some guff. Together, we, well, mostly Aqualad, stopped him from sinking Long Island. Ghost Jerk is like, Yeah, and what happened then? Dick is like, 
Uh, I told the West Coast Titans that they should probably break up because they weren't as good as we were. Ghost Jerk is like, and then? Dick is like, Aqualad quit the team because he felt unappreciated, and then everyone else quit too. Ghost Jerk is like, yeah, because you're no Aqualad. Dick is like, that's an unfair standard to hold someone to. Aqualad is the greatest. Ghost Jerk is like, Okay, fair point, but still, fuck you, you suck. The ghost jerk disappears, and the Long Island headquarters that had been the site of Dick's most recent flashback starts to collapse around him. He's about to be crushed by falling dream debris, when Nice Ghost Jerk suddenly appears and beckons him to safety. Nice Ghost Jerk removes their hood and reveals himself to be... Lilith! Dick is like, What gives, Lilith? What's going on? But before Lilith can answer, Dick awakens in his bed. He's like, Phew, glad that's over. It must have been a dream. But then Raven, wearing her old dark blue costume, appears in a puff of smoke and is like, Dick Grayson, you need to form a new Teen Titans team. Dick is like, Well, shit. Guess I need to start reliving the events of DC Comics Present number 26 and New Teen Titans number 1, huh? Yup. Dick watches himself as he phones Kid Flash and Wonder Girl and tells them that he's putting the band back together. Kid Flash initially declines and hangs up on him, but Raven is like, Don't sweat it. I'll manipulate his emotions and make him fall in love with me to get him to sign on. Then, Raven's costume changes. She is now wearing her new white bird costume. She's like, Dick, it's me, Raven, from the now time. Do you get what's going on here? Dick is like, yeah, mostly. Well, that makes one of us. He continues, or at least I thought I did until you and Lilith showed up. Raven is like, don't worry about that part. For now, just keep going along with the flashbacks and let this thing play out, okay? Dick is like, okay. In rapid succession, Dick finds himself witnessing Starfire trying to escape from the farty Godzilla monsters who had held her captive, Cyborg's dad colluding with Raven to get Dick to form a new teenage team for his estranged son to join, and Raven using her magic on Wally to get him to change his mind about rejoining. Once she's done with that, Raven is like, I know you think that was a crummy thing to do to Wally, Dick, but... Dick cuts her off and is like, no, I get it now. Besides, it's Wally's fault for being such a horn dog." Ouch. The flashbacks continue. Dick sees himself and Raven recruiting Cyborg and Beast Boy. Then, the newly assembled team uniting to rescue Starfire from the gassy space lizards minutes before the ship which had held her captive blew up. He relives the new Teen Titans' early adventures, fighting Deathstroke and Trigon. He sees the Titans growing, both as individuals and as a team. The scene shifts once again, and now Dick, Raven, and Lilith are all floating in the strangely familiar void where the pink-robed adversary first brought Dick. Dick is like, Where are we? Raven is like, We're in your dreams, Dick. Lilith and I Freddy Kruegered our way in here when we learned that you were under attack by... Before Raven can reveal the identity of Dick's mysterious assailant, the pink-robed jerk pops up and is like, Nope! You're not telling him that yet! Come on, asshole! You've got more trauma to revisit! 
Dick finds himself whisked away to more memories of New Teen Titans issues, only this time without the friendly intervention of Lilith or Raven. As the mocking voice of his tormentor forces him to second-guess his every decision, Dick witnesses his torture at the hands of Brother Blood, the Titans' betrayal by Terra and her subsequent death, and the gang's brief respective team-ups with Cole and Zack Wingman. Dick attends to defend his actions. The ghost jerk isn't having it. But at one point, Mal's face pops up and is like, Yeah, you tell him, Dick! Fuck this hive-robed jerkhole! Dick is like, Mal? But as quickly as he had appeared, Mal's face vanishes, and Dick finds himself once again lost in a headlong rush through the worst of his past. He sees himself recaptured by Brother Blood and being brainwashed, watching Starfire get space-married to Captain Papadopoulos, sullenly nursing a cup of coffee on his 20th birthday as the third wheel on his girlfriend's space honeymoon, and petulantly berating Wonder Girl for attempting to lead the team in his stead. The ghost jerk ends his cavalcade of criticism by placing the blame for Jason Todd's death on Dick's thoroughly berated head. At this, Dick is like, No, you know what? Fuck you. I've screwed up a lot, but I always did my best. And a lot of this shit just isn't my fault. You want me to give up and quit. That's your whole thing, right? Well, I'm not going to. So I guess we're going to have to fight. Dick finds himself back in the dream void place. But this time, he's standing on a section of a dilapidated stone platform where Mal Duncan, in his herald outfit, is chained to a wall. Mal is like, Dick, I knew you'd make it. Dick is like, what's going on? The pink-robed jerk shows up and is like, You want to know what's going on? What's going on is your doom, Dick Grayson. The jerk dramatically removes his hood, revealing himself to be... The Gargoyle! Huh? Isaac Christensen from The Defenders? No, the other The Gargoyle. The weird bird-faced guy from Teen Titans 14 who runs Limbo, the realm where people go when they feel super bad about themselves and give in to bad vibes. The one Dick once defeated by crushing the guy's ring shaped like his own head with a pair of tiny pliers. That the gargoyle. Well, that's a little anticlimactic. Dick tries to fight, but they're in Limbo, where gargoyle is super powerful. Plus, Dick's body here is just a dream projection and seems to have no effect on his opponent. Gargoyle starts whooping the shit out of Dick, but then Dick says, Get up, Dick! Now's your only chance! Gargoyle is like, Are you talking to yourself? Because that's creepy! Knock it off! Dick punches Gargoyle in the face. Wait, I thought he couldn't do that here. Well, that's what Gargoyle thought too, so the recently robed reprobate is especially surprised when Dick absolutely beats the crap out of him. And as a finishing touch, he crushes the gargoyle's new ring, which, disappointingly, is no longer shaped like his head, beneath his bare foot. Dick rushes over to free Mal, but before he can loosen the shackles, the writhing mass of tentacles, eyeballs, and bad intentions, known as the Antithesis, pops up out of nowhere and starts yelling at Gargoyle to get up. Huh? The antithesis tells Gargoyle that if he doesn't kill Dick and Mal, he's gonna blow up Limbo. The Gargoyle struggles to comply, but is down for the count. His hideous appearance starts to shimmer, and his body transforms into its original shape. That of Brom Stick, the middle-aged tea party-looking asshole that the Titans beat up in their first adventure. Huh? Dick is like, Huh? 
Yeah, that's what I said. Mal is like, I'll explain later, but first we've got to get out of here before everything explodes. Mal toots on his high-tech soprano sax, and he and Dick are transported to Dick's apartment. The two heroes find themselves surrounded by the concerned faces of the current Titans roster, plus Lilith, Mal's wife Karen, a.k.a. Bumblebee, and Beast Boy, who, remember, is officially off the team. Hooray! Someone mentions that they invited Danny fucking Chase, but he declined to show up. Hooray! Dick is like, I am so glad to be home and see you guys, but will someone please tell me what the fuck just happened? Raven is like, The antithesis has hated you ever since your first encounter. Years ago, it transformed Bromstick into the gargoyle and gave him control of Limbo in hopes that he would destroy you. He failed to defeat you the first time he tried, back when you used those tiny pliers to bust his ring. But recently, he sensed that you were feeling shitty about Jason's death and thought that if he could make you feel even shittier, you'd be stuck in limbo forever and he could have his revenge. Lilith and I tried to wake you up, but when we couldn't, we figured we'd just hop into your dreams and try to help you out there. That helped you snap out of it, but the gargoyle still would have murdered you if Joey hadn't used his creepy lemur eyes to hop into your body, which helped you get dream strong for some reason. Karen is like, thanks for saving Mal, Dick. Dick is like, no problem, only what exactly was his role in all this? Mal is like, oh, the gargoyle hated me too. He has ever since I defeated him back in Teen Titans number 35. Dick is like, oh, did you use tiny pliers too? Mal is like, no, I used computer programming. Well, that, my enthusiasm for Caribbean dance fads and his confusion about homonyms. Dick is like, yeah, that makes sense. Mal is like, only before I defeated him, he programmed a sequence into my computer which would release the antithesis which I guess we were keeping trapped in the computer's mainframe? Dick is like, well, those are all computer words, so I guess that checks out. Mal continues, and I goofed up and used that sequence to program the high-tech soprano sax that Karen and I built, so every time I tooted the horn, the antithesis got closer to escaping. I retired from superheroing years ago, so that should have been that. Karen is like, only a few nights ago, Mal started sleepwalking. I think the gargoyle made him do it. He put on his old costume and was tooting in his sleep. I woke up just in time to see him inadvertently open a portal. The gargoyle reached through it and yoinked him away to limbo. I was pretty freaked out, so I called Lilith and, well, you know the rest. Mal is like, yeah, sorry about all the hassle. I'm gonna bust up that horn as soon as we get home. Dick is like, don't worry about it. Say, since everyone is here, want to have a party? Lilith is like, wish I could, but I got a big day ahead of me tomorrow. Karen is like, nah, I think me and Mal are going to go to a hotel and have sex. Oh, good for them. Beast Boy is like, sure. But Cyborg is like, sorry, Gar, you know the rules. You're only allowed to hang out with us if we're worriedly watching Dick sleep. Go home. Hooray! The rest of the Titans head back to their T-shaped skyscraper to drink beers and toast to their shared history. The end. I gotta admit I'm at least a little bit disappointed that nobody made Dick remember the time Wally drank all that syrup. Ah yeah, well, maybe in another 25 years. 
And joining me once again via the magic of telephonic communication is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, how's it going? It's going just fine. Feeling good? Properly caffeinated? Excellent. Probably ready to talk about this giant comic book we read. How are you? I'm doing okay. I am on the Oregon coast right now, which nice. is lovely. Lisa and I rented a place for a few weeks, and it's nice. The place we rented is a weird mix of very fancy and kind of falling apart in a way that, like, you know, when they were advertising it, they were just advertising the fancy, and I was like, how are we able to afford this? And then when we get here, I can see how. Ah, uh, so uh, nice amenities, but heavily used? Or? That's part of it. I mean... There's some really fancy stuff, like there's a baby grand piano in one room, and then <laughs> all of the chairs, the like upholstery is falling off of. Oh. My favorite odd thing about this place, I've got to say, is it has a fireplace in it, which is really nice because it is pretty cold. Mm -hmm. But as we were leaving to come here, the guy called us to say a couple of things, but one of them was, hey... I know I said I would provide firewood, but I forgot to order some, but I ordered some now. It just hasn't arrived yet. I'll try to leave something up there that you can put in the stove, though. Mm. And in the wood bin, there are five circular wooden discs that are like maybe four inches in diameter. So like um, big coasters? That was what I thought initially, and then I noticed that they had the words Better Home and Garden burned into them. Huh. Little bit of detective work. They are the lids to five scented candles. Oh, jeez. So that will definitely be keeping us warm on these cold January nights. And maybe it'll smell like, I don't know, spiced apples or pumpkins or something. Yeah, probably. But uh, overall, it's just it's really nice to be here. I was able to set up sound baffling stuff in a little corner of the place. So hopefully my voice isn't too echoey, but it's just nice to be near the ocean. I like it. I hear you. It is a, a magical thing being near the water. Well, speaking of magical things, we got a hell of a comic book to talk about. Oh, boy. I don't know if magical is necessarily the proper adjective, but... In a certain sense, I think there's enough going on in this comic book that pretty much every adjective can describe it in some way or another. Sure. So you want to start using those adjectives? I'll give it a shot. All right. Feel free to throw in some nouns and adverbs, too. Okay. Hell, verbs. I don't even give a shit, man. Just all the words. Yeah, man. Use a gerund. I don't give a fuck. That's a kind of verb, right? Uh, I believe a gerund is a noun ending in ing. Oh, like, uh, plating? Yeah. Oh, wow. I just thought it was anything in, with an ing at the end. Oh, no, no, no. If you're, if you're calling a verb a gerund, oh boy, Corey. Wow. Okay. So 60 some odd pages of this comic and I've learned something. <laughs> <laughs> Glad to hear it. So, Corey, which words would you use to describe this comic? I don't know if I have any specific words because they all got used up in the comic, but <laughs> I don't know. My experience of it, despite that, and despite it being long and just really covering 
I don't know, the last 25 years of the series, I enjoyed the experience. Yeah, I did too. I feel like I should almost be more daunted by recording a podcast about it because there is so much to describe. It is such a enormous task that George Perez undertook writing this thing that it seems like it should be more intimidating, but I feel strangely serene about covering it, I gotta say. Yeah, you just gotta let it wash over you, man. And <laughs> I don't know that it does it a service to try and cover every single bit of it. Exactly. That is how I am kind of feeling about it. I think when we normally cover a comic book, I'm like, oh man, I, I want to make sure I get everything. I don't want to miss anything. And in this, there's no way I'm going to cover everything. So it just kind of is freeing. Mm -hmm. Lisa and I had a conversation a while ago with one of her friends who really likes the mountains mm -hmm. and they like hiking and stuff and uh, specifically came down to like ocean versus mountain as a travel destination. And I much prefer the ocean because both an ocean and a mountain are intimidating. Mm -hmm. But with an ocean, there's no call to action. Like, it's huge and it is dwarfing you and it makes you feel insignificant in a way that, yeah, but there's nothing I can do about it. Like with a mountain, it's also huge and makes you feel insignificant. But like you feel like, oh, I should probably try to climb that thing. With an ocean, well, whatever, man. It's just there. Nothing you can do about it. I know. I sometimes feel like a bad tourist or something when I go to a place that's an ocean type place and I just don't go in the ocean. Like, I'll go sit next to it and look at it. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'll put my feet in there, but I don't know. Rarely do I, I, I do more than that. And I, I do prefer that over the mountain, too. Yeah, that's kind of how I feel about this comic book, too. It's like the ocean. Yeah, it's, it's, it's <laughs> immense and filled with many deadly things, but I know that I can't conquer it. So uh, let's have some fun with it. Sounds good. So I don't know, just I guess jumping in, one part that I'm just really stuck on that didn't make any sense to me and almost like set it off on the wrong foot for me was a, I don't really remember Dick and Starfire breaking up or changing their relationship status. And B, I don't understand why after doing that, Dick would go on dates with her disguised as other men and then just go home and go like, I, I don't, that doesn't make any sense. Did I miss something? No, you didn't. It is a bizarre choice that is made in this comic that makes it unnecessarily confusing. It just kind of puts the whole thing off on the wrong foot, really, I gotta say. I think it's an interesting choice, but it's not one that had been previously established in any way. I don't know why he would need to wear disguises to go on dates with her. Maybe Jason Todd's death is making him rethink the importance of actually trying to maintain a secret identity. That's all I can come up with. Maybe Starfire is just into weird shit. I hadn't considered that, but but it does jive with, like, so on page one, she gets called two weird names, like, right off the bat. And I was like, oh, boy, that's that's right. We are in the 80s or, I don't know, early 90s. I, I can't remember the date here. This is the uh, 89 summer annual. Okay. So, yeah, that first page basically is like, whoa, 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 slow your roll, lady. You're going on too many dates with too many fellas. The guys on the street call her a lamb chop on the prowl? Yeah. That's not a thing, is it? I don't know. I do not think it was a thing. 
I was a Mr. Rogers neighborhood guy, so I never really watched Sherry Lewis and Lamb Chop, but it's possible that the puppet of a sheep was noted for its sexually promiscuous behavior. And then and then I guess they try and soften it by having the doorman call her princess, but inquire if she's going up alone. That may just be her being bad at her secret identity, because she is a princess. Hmm. Good point. Let's let's go with that because I was just like I got hit in the face with those twice, you know, or one after another, and I was just like, oh man, this is. Ugh. It is kind of a shame because I feel like that is the part of the story that should be grounding us before we veer into weird shit, but it doesn't give you a chance to set your balance before you start plunging into the weird shit. Mm-mm. No, it's like you got your your cold can of weird, but then. The doorbell rang and you ran down some stairs with it and then you forgot and you ran back upstairs and you opened it and it just goes all over the place. Exactly. That being said, I was surprised at the extent to which this comic succeeds in what I think it was trying to do. Because it is taking, at the time when it came out, I think around 25 years of Teen Titans history and compressing it into 66 pages and retconning it as it goes and trying to make some of the pieces that never initially fit together in the run not only fit together but also fit together with a new post-crisis continuity and it kind of works yeah and on top of all of that doing it in the context of you know ooh, it's a weird dream which is so easy i think to fuck up or mm-hmm. to use as a, a a way to do a bad job yeah. Oh, oh, it's all a dream. But no, they actually nailed the dream logic feel really well, I thought. I completely agree. They absolutely did. The fact that it is so many different artists contributing to it could have made this issue seem like a real boondoggle, but it doesn't. Like, it works with the dream logic way. Like, different parts of his past are remembered in different ways. I thought all of the artists actually did a pretty good job to varying degrees. I wasn't as crazy about... Trevor Von Eden's art. He was the guy who was handling the flashbacks to the era when they were in jumpsuits instead of their costumes, which is too bad because there's a lot of Trevor Von Eden art that I really do like. Mm-hmm. He was one of the co-creators of Black Lightning, and he did a Green Arrow miniseries that I really like. But his stuff in this really wasn't landing for me. But even when it didn't, it still works with the way you remember different eras of your past and ties into the dream logic thing and makes the shift in art styles make narrative sense in a way that I thought was really cool. Yeah, I agree. Same experience, like the parts that seemed a little hokey art-wise, it worked. And some of the art was just fucking spectacular. I was initially kind of disappointed to realize that George Perez didn't do any pencils in this book. He wrote the whole story, and he did inks over some of Tom Grummet's pencils for some pages. But uh, I, I must say, I was like, you see George Perez's name on the cover of a comic book that has a George Perez cover on it, and you get excited to see some George Perez artwork. Mm-hmm. It would be like if that Mott the Hoople album that has all the young dudes on it had David Bowie's name in big letters, and then you find out, well, I mean, he played saxophone on a couple of songs. (laughs) But some of the art, especially Michael Bear, who is a name that I was not previously that familiar with, 
he knocked it fucking out of the park. He has a really interesting art style that totally works with the dream sequences. There's a guide at the end to see who did which pages, and the pages that he did were ones that invariably just like, when you turn to them, it's just like, oh, shit. Hmm. Were those the ones that had like the, the swirly backgrounds and the faces with one eye bigger than the other and stuff? Some of those were his. There was also, there was kind of almost like a, a goth quality to some of it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like the one where uh, Wonder Girl looks like uh, Death from the Sandman comics. Yeah. Like those are all Michael Bear pages and they're mm -hmm. fucking spectacular. Yeah, so good. But the flashbacks to the old school Teen Titans when we get to see them fighting Brom Stick again. You know, Brom Stick before he's the gargoyle, which is an odd retcon that they made, but I kind of like. Mm -hmm. Those are drawn by Irv Novick, who did some of the really early Teen Titans issues. Like he did issues eight through 10 of the original series. And it was really cool to see his artwork again. At first, I was like, oh, did they, like, bring him out of retirement and get him to do this as, like, some kind of an homage? But it turns out Irv Novick was just a guy who worked pretty consistently as a penciler from, like, 1939 through the mid-90s. So he may have just been who was on staff at DC at the time. But I loved seeing his artwork again, and I thought it was great. Wow, that is a hell of a run. Mm-hmm. I also think the title of the book, Pieces of the Puzzle, is in so many ways the perfect title for it, because that really is what it is doing. It is taking the pieces from Brave and the Bold 54 and then like the retcon that we got at the end of the original Teen Titans series where they had to fight their old mentors and stuff. Mm -hmm. Just various issues that never quite fit together, in part because a lot of those were written by Bob Haney and were never intended to fit together. And like twists them and like kind of sands off some edges and makes them fit in a way that really did surprise me. One retcon I wasn't that crazy about, I gotta say. I understand the impetus behind it, but it still disappoints me, is that Mal Duncan no longer beat up an angel in a boxing match to get a magical shofar. I was wondering when that was going to come up. And not not only that, but he kind of fucked up when he was making the shofar because he, he did some accidental hack of the Titans computer that let the antithesis come in, that let the gargoyle come in. And then every time he blew it, it messed with the dimensions a little bit. Like everything was going good when they were doing that little wrap up synopsis bit at the end. And I was like, oh, my gosh, they're going to pull this together in three panels. And they're like, but wait, there's more. Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. It looked like it was all going to tie together and it still did kind of tie together. But they did just keep piling in more details, which I hope means we're going to get to see more of Mal Duncan in the new Teen Titans stuff that we're covering. Like it makes sense if they're trying to reintroduce the character. And I get the idea that for some reason, science nonsense is more palatable than magic nonsense mm -hmm. in this era. But I liked it when he punched an angel in the dick and got a magic horn. Yeah, yeah, me too. But I, I had kind of a similar takeaway, which it was like, oh boy, I hope we get to see more of Mal and, and Karen or Harold mm -hmm. and uh, Bumblebee. I hope that as well. I'm not crazy about his new costume. Even from the George Perez standard of costumes, normally when he draws something, it looks great. And then when other people draw it, it doesn't. I don't know if he designed this costume. I get kind of the impression that he did, but he didn't actually draw it in here. So 
Maybe it'll look great when he does. It seems fine, but Mal has kind of a long history of costumes that are at best fine. Mm -hmm. Although that is another aspect that is retconned out of this. He never apparently dressed up as the Guardian. He never dressed up as Hornblower. We do see he had his series of jumpsuits, which I guess is nice, but I feel like he gets short shrift in this comic in which he is a central character, and it's consistent with the way that he was written back in the 70s, but I still don't like it. I don't like that his defining character more or less is that, oh, he wants to be a hero so bad, but he's not quite good enough at it. I think that's a shitty thing to have be the defining characteristic of your one black character. I guess two now that Cyborg is still there, but uh, it's still not great. Yeah, I, I found it kind of a weird parallel too that like the main job when they're not heroing that the two black characters have is to hang out at the tower and keep it running. Yeah. I mean, they're basically IT guys, which is cool, but also it's like, oh, that's weird. It's IT guys, but with... Cyborg gets described more that way. With Mal, it is more that he is seen as a maintenance worker. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know who's in the Mal's new costume is Karen. That was a weird turn of phrase. <laughs> she had, she's like, whoo, man in a hood. Hmm. Like, nobody, nope, that's not a thing. I wouldn't think so. Especially, like, his new costume seems to be significantly, like, bulkier and less form-fitting and has a big cloak over it. Than even than the jumpsuits, I would say. Mm -hmm. It's got a big H on the chest. That's kind of nice, I guess. Yeah, it's a good letter. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm a fan. It isn't necessarily a look that I would think like, mmm, so hot. <laughs> well, you're, you're not Bumblebee. You know, we don't know what makes people tick. That is very true. I think I have mentioned this on the show before, but there is a new comic book that came out last year. It's called The Other History of the DC Universe, and the second issue is a focus on Mal Duncan and Karen Beecher that is describing all of these events from their perspective and basically calling out both the Titans and the DC Universe in general for how fucking racist they were, and mm. it's fucking tremendous. Mm. It may be my favorite comic to come out last year, although... although the first issue of Wonder Woman Historia, the Amazons, is just fucking amazing, too. Good year for comics last year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The art in that one is mind-boggling. Yeah, it is almost certainly the most beautiful, flat-out beautiful comic book that I have ever seen. But back to the other history of the DC Universe issue, it, it is interesting to get the different perspective on those characters, and I really like having that. And I'm really glad that I now get to view that comic in conversation with this one in that they are both kind of retconning events that don't quite fit with the way the DC Universe sees itself now, mm. but trying to square the fact that they did in continuity happen. Wildly different takes on them, and I think it's interesting to see those in conversation with each other. Yeah, yeah, I bet I would like to read that. I will be happy to loan them to you. different character who gets retconned in a way that I like a lot more that I think actually makes more sense is uh, that hyphen girl is now Flamebird. And I really dug that. 
Okay. I, yeah, I was I was trying to think back. I couldn't remember if I had just forgotten the flame bird thing or what. Nope. That is now what Betty Kane was known as. She was never bat hyphen girl. She is now flame bird, which I think is interesting. And I don't know. On the one hand, I really like it that it makes her like the counterpoint to Nightwing because that had been like the pairing initially was Nightwing was when Superman cosplayed as Halloween store Batman. And then Flamebird was when Jimmy Olsen cosplayed as Halloween store Robin. So Flamebird is the Robin to, to Batman's Nightwing. The syntax of that is getting all confusing. Superman's Batman's Nightwing? Yeah, Superman's Batman's Nightwing. Got it. And Flamebird is Jimmy Olsen's Robin's Flamebird. I am putting the double colons in absolutely the wrong place on this SAT question, but you get what I'm saying, right? <laughs> I do. I, man, the East Coast, West Coast thing was funny in this too, because I don't know if it's canonical, but they did make all of the West Coast Titans, I feel, talk like surfers. Is that a thing? I think specifically they did that with Golden Eagle, possibly just in an attempt to give him some kind of a fucking personality because he really didn't have one as a character before. And I thought it worked. With the Flamebird thing, I am a little bit torn because I think it is really interesting to have that, like have her be the counterpoint to Nightwing. But as her character gets written going forward from this point, really her defining character is her obsession with Robin. And I think that kind of sells the character short a little bit. Mm -hmm. You do see some of that in this issue, but in this issue, it's kind of cute. And I wish so many writers hadn't latched onto that as how they view the character. With Golden Eagle, sure, make him a fucking surfer, dude. I don't give a shit. It was fun. I think it's odd, and it, it is something that I've noticed before. You will sometimes hear people refer to, like, the Teen Titans West era, and it was a three-issue arc. Like, it really seems to loom large in Titans history, and people keep wanting to go back to that and explore that, quote, era, unquote. And it really wasn't an era. It was just, like one story arc that lasted three issues. Well, it's everybody on the West Coast that was a fan being like, hey, why does New York get to have all the fun? Come on, guys. I think part of it is that later on you did get an Avengers West Coast. And so there's just that idea got implanted. And the idea of having a West Coast Team Titans team is fun. I just think it's odd that it it really was never a thing. <laughs> like, I don't mm -hmm. think they ever even officially had a team or a headquarters. They just had one mission that they did together. I feel like it, it is this pervasive idea, though, because on the, the show that came out recently, I think they're, they're based in San Francisco, their tower. I think maybe later iterations of the Titans, they moved their skyscraper to the West Coast, which much of, must have been a Herculean effort. Mm. But when you live in a universe where there is probably a literal Hercules, maybe less of an issue. Yeah, Vic was probably just tired of flying out to California to watch Casablanca. <laughs> like, Come on, guys, let's move. Yeah, Lord knows they don't have any film festivals on the West Coast, so he had to keep hopping back and forth. On the East Coast. Or wait, was it? did she fly out to see him? I can't she flew remember. out to see him, so they, oh, okay. they watched Casablanca on the East Coast. Oh, okay, my bad. They'll still need to go back for the film festivals. Oh, sure. Um,
the other big retcon that we get in this is the whole antithesis, gargoyle, Mr. Twister, all being kind of grouped together. Like, Mr. Twister slash Bromstick is the gargoyle now. Mm-hmm. And they work for the antithesis. Mm-hmm. That all seemed new, and also it took me a long time to remember who the antithesis was. Yeah, same. And then I looked up some pictures of him, and I was like, oh man, he still looks like a goddamn nightmare, but I kind of liked the goofier version of him that was in uh, Teen Titans 53, where he had like a European power adapter for a crotch. (laughs) (laughs) Oh shit. Yeah, I forgot about that. Now he's just a melting, pissed off octopus tree. Mm. From a computer. Yeah, yeah. Well, obviously from a computer. Yeah. So what did you think? Did it make sense to you to make the Bromstick and Gargoyle be the same person? Um, I didn't really see any reason (laughs) that that needed to happen. I kind of didn't either. I didn't really get what they were fixing there, except for maybe the idea that you want to have the first villain that the Titans face have more significance. So you make him tied to another villain, but it's not like the Gargoyle had much significance. He only showed up twice in the old Titan run. Once he fought Robin, once he fought Mal. Mm-hmm. It was fine, but it did kind of make me go, I, I, don't, I don't really get what you're doing here. Yeah, no, I, I, I think Perez just was like, hey, these guys are cool. Let's combine them. But, you know, definite dearth of uh, tiny players or limbo contests where the gargoyle's concerned. I know. Very, very disappointing. I wonder if that is why it was important that he get Dick when he was sleeping in just his pajama bottom so he could be sure he didn't have his tiny pliers with him. Ah, could be. Also makes you wonder if they could have beaten Brom Stick if Brom Stick was maybe wearing a ring that was shaped like a weird old bald dude that they could have just <laughs> crushed with some tiny pliers instead of trying to yoink his cape made of passenger pigeon feathers away from him. I think they uh, stole his uh, his staff, right? And then pulled the ladder out from under him. You're right. The cape made of passenger pigeon feathers largely did seem to be a red herring. Mm-hmm. He definitely had it, but I guess it was just a thing that he liked. <laughs> yeah. Everybody needs their giant penny, I guess. I guess so. One thing that I did like that they retconned that did work for me was placing more of a significance on that time when they helped Peyton Manning's dad kill a baby. Mm -hmm. That issue was traumatizing for us when we read it. Mm -hmm. We're like, whoa, this is really weird and strangely dark. And it happened to coincide with, I when just for low sales, not because of anything that happened in the story, I don't think, the Teen Titans got canceled for a couple of years, so it did mark them taking a break. But there had, I don't think, ever been any significance placed on that storyline before, really. And they sure did in this one, and I really did appreciate that, actually. Yeah, I feel like that was maybe Perez going back and being like, whoa, <laughs> that was a weird one. <laughs> I felt for Dick, too, as soon as they show the baby skeleton, and he's like, oh, no, not this. I was like, oh, man, no, I feel you. Yeah, you kind of lose a little bit of sympathy later when all of the other Titans are like, what the fuck are you doing letting that old man shoot a baby? And he's like, no, no, 
this is the right thing to do. It's what we have to do. You guys, if, if he does this, we get the house. <laughs> Come on! And then, yeah, having the rest of the team look at him like he is a fucking monster. Because, I mean, that is a monstrous thing to do if you put it in that context. If everybody's like, hey, we need to have some kind of debate about this. Should we let an old man shoot a baby? <laughs> and he's like, yeah, we should absolutely let him. And no debate over. Yeah, I, I think that's one of the things that this issue does well. I mean, essentially, he's having a like a, a leadership crisis freak out because he got, I guess, Freddy Krueger by by the gargoyle and Bromstick and Antithesis. But the things that it touches on are legit, right? Like these themes of, I'm always going to be in Batman's shadow. Uh, he was a dick, so am I a dick? Mm -hmm. And to be a leader, you got to make tough decisions. But, oh boy, I made some bad ones over the years. It also does seem like I got to say that Gargoyle is maybe just a big Wonder Girl fan because when he's describing how shitty the Titans are and what a bad job that they did, one of the things that he keeps coming back to is like, except Wonder Girl, she did an awesome job. Look what a good job she did here. Man, she's so much better than you. Mm -hmm. Which, again, I think that would really be something that fits into that crisis of leadership thing because she's the only other person that basically took over when Dick couldn't keep it together. Well, her and Mr. Jupiter for a time, and you see that Mr. Jupiter is just fully excised from their backstory. Yeah, that's a good point. I wonder why that is. It would have been really uh, fun to see a little uh, drug balloon <laughs> scene in here. Yeah, that is one that I kind of get why they do it. And actually, if you read the back material of this comic book, there is a full page at the back and I understand if you didn't get a chance to read it but it is by Mark Wade and he basically just goes linearly through the Titans publication history and backstory and mm. when he talks about the Mr. Jupiter era he's like it was there was some fun stuff but ultimately it seemed like a mistake and a betrayal to have the Teen Titans when it was their whole point that they were getting out from an adult shadows and striking out on their own have a mentor who was an adult mm -hmm. And I can understand that. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point, too. And I, I think another thing in that same vein that this issue highlights is the idea of, I guess, financial independence being a thing, because it does cover how essentially the tower and the maintenance of it and probably, I don't know, their groceries and other shit you need to get crime taken care of are all bankrolled by Silas Stone, conditional to them letting Cyborg hang out with them. Yeah. I was like, ooh, I don't remember if we knew that before, but dang. There are a few little things that I just want to call out real quick. We're definitely not going to be able to hit all of the little things in this issue. But um, at the end of the book, it thanks Bob Haney and Bruno Premiani and Charles Paris for creating the Teen Titans. That seemed really weird to me. And I was like, am I misremembering it? Because I had not heard that name in conjunction with the Teen Titans before. And I looked back and credited. I mean, it's weird to say credited because I don't think there were any credits in the initial appearance listed. But in the credits that I have found, it's always Sheldon Moldoff is the person who is credited as the inker. And Charles Paris was an inker, and he often inked Sheldon Moldoff's pencils. And so 
I'm wondering if either George Perez just got confused or if he is privy to information that we are not and maybe Charles Paris was the actual anchor of that issue. It would be kind of fitting if Sheldon Moldoff got credit for someone else's work because throughout his career, a lot of his work got credited to Bob Kane, the alleged creator of Batman, hmm. who had it in his contract for a long time that regardless of who drew Batman, he would be credited as the artist and given sole credit as writer and artist. What? He fucked over so many people. Oh, man. But one of them was Sheldon Moldoff. He was one of the team of people who created, quote, Bob Kane, unquote, artwork. So it would be kind of fitting if Sheldon Moldoff ended up getting credit for someone else's work. But, you know, it sucks for Charles Paris if he did help create the Teen Titans. Interesting. Almost like a, another retcon. Indeed. What did you think of the cover of this issue? That is the one piece of George Perez penciled artwork that we get in this. And it's certainly very distinctive. How did you feel about it? I am amazed that he was able to fit so many characters into the title. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I like it. It's not really representative of the experience that you get of, of the art in the comic. That's true. And I don't, I don't feel it's even necessarily that representative of, of George Perez's artwork in general or the level of detail that you generally get of it. It is good, and I really appreciate the design of it, that you have the original Teen Titans going across the top of the T, and then coming down, you see the evolution of Dick Grayson from his first Robin costume, his slightly later Robin costume, then Nightwing, then as he is as a civilian, as he is going through this issue. And then you see the various Teen Titans teams that he is going through in this storyline represented on either side of him. So I thought that was nice. I also appreciated getting to see three Aqua Lads on a single comic book cover. So by that metric, this is probably the best comic book cover ever. <laughs> yeah, no, it was, it was fun too. And, and I like that, you know, starting at the top with them in, in their youngest form, it, it does tell you that, hey, you're going you're gonna to get some history here. Like, this mm -hmm. is, is going to go through the years. And boy, did it. Mm -hmm. I got to say, I, uh, Flame Girls get up as, well, we'll probably get into that, but goggles and an ascot, not bad. Mm -hmm. You know what? Let's, uh, let's start getting into some of this stuff, shall we? Sure. Rick, would you mind singing us into the minutia? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia. Like Cory eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. So, Cory, which of these categories do you feel like hitting up first? So, we, we've talked a fair amount about all the interesting artwork in here. Do you want to start with panels? Sure. Cory, what was your favorite panel in this comic? Oof, boy. I don't know. I narrowed it down to four to choose from <laughs> i think i have a similar amount and there are many more that i probably could have thrown in there there's so many that are so good and also so many different styles represented i feel like we were at a just like a fancy vegas buffet of art and my plate is too full oh uh, yeah and then we went back again in the same day <laughs> and then we felt bad oh wait no that really happened oh boy i can't i can't even put myself in that same headspace <laughs> I know. I can't imagine doing two buffets in a day right now. 
the same one. <laughs> Lobster was so good. Yeah. Oh boy. Going back in the the Wayback Machine on page eight, the scene when the young Titans, which is Aqualad and Kid Flash and Robin, are all leaving and waving goodbye to each other. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It warmed the cockles of my heart. I can understand that. That was very sweet. And uh, it's nice to see Irv Novik drawing the Titans from that era again. It's just really cool. He's the guy that did the honey bucket issue. Oh, honey bucket. He's also the guy who drew the rumble at the beach where they had to fight, I think, a submarine pirate and a million college students who were going to kill each other or something. Oh, yeah. High stakes. But uh, yeah, just nice to see his artwork and nice to see the Titans from that era. I got to say the first panel in this comic that just made me go, oh, damn, is the retconning of the introduction of Wonder Girl's new costume. It is on page 14. And I think partly just because the recent cover that we got of the new Troya costume referenced the introduction of Wonder Girl's first new costume. And so I've been thinking about that Nick Cardi art a lot. And I think they went, went the right direction with this. If you're not George Perez, you're not going to be able to reproduce Nick Cardi style art. And so just go in a totally different direction. This is Wonder Girl getting that new costume as if it was happening in the 80s. Like, it is so cool looking and so weird and goth and edgy. And I think that is the impact that that new costume was supposed to have initially. Yeah, yeah. And it's also in the context of this like really dark, scary dream where Dick is falling through space. And it's just super appropriate, the almost creepiness mm -hmm. of that scene. Uh, yeah, and that's the one, too, that really reminded me of the artwork in the Sandman. Yeah, totally. There are a few different panels like that. There's one of Raven's mom. They're all by Michael Bear, and they're fucking great. Yeah, I, I think my two others that were my favorites are from Michael Bear. Also, one of them, I think, is on the page previous to that. Dick is falling through space, belly down. He's screaming, stop it. And there's two faces superimposed kind of on top of him that have, like, I don't know, silver liquid energy exploding out of them. Oh, man. I don't know how to describe it. Maybe you can give it a shot, but uh, I think that's page 13 at the top of the page. Yeah, the stop it where they're very sketchy faces that, yeah, look like they are maybe drawn on a tabletop out of mercury. It's really cool looking. The page before that, too, where you see the distorted faces of the evil versions of the Justice League, it really does show Dick's like descent into this dream logic madness. And it's so well done. It's so appropriate for this. And to use that kind of art as the I think that's where he's supposed to be more in limbo and he's transitioning through different stages of his life where he's just kind of surfing in his own body, having no real control over what's happening. It's really neat. You also see that kind of art used to represent a few different scenes from the Teen Titans. You get the monster bait issue. <laughs> and I mean, who among us, when we were having dreams of that kind, especially in our teenage years, didn't, you know, experiment with masturbation? 
But yeah, you also get that art style being used to depict their first encounter with Beast Boy, which is, you know, in terms of its consequences, also kind of horrifying because Beast Boy ended up on the team eventually. Got a nice uh, albino baboon reference right after it. Pretty nice. I have another panel that is by Michael Bear. I called it Goth Dick. (laughs) It's on page 25, and it is another, like, liminal scene in Limbo. It is right after Dick has come to terms with his role in the infanticide of Peyton Manning's demon brother, maybe? Mm Mm-hmm. But yeah, this look on his confusion and he's got a real bad case of bedhead and uh, he looks really cool and kind of Robert Smithed up. And uh, I like it a lot. I actually had that one also. Yep. I just called it uh, Dick's Face. And um, man, it is a testament to an artist when they can capture an expression that has all the subtlety in it with, you know, relatively simple, I guess, artwork. Yeah, it's really something. Speaking of expressiveness, I want to get to my other favorite panel, which is on page 34. This is a page that is by Kevin McGuire, who is probably best known for his work on Justice League International. And the thing that I love about him is how expressive his characters' faces are. He draws a smirk, maybe better than anyone else in comic books. And on this panel, the beatific look on the face of Flamebird as she is crushing out on Pajama Dick is so good and so sweet and just so nicely done. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it's nice to see Kevin Maguire doing Teen Titans characters because that's not something I've seen before. Yeah, no, that's, I I agree. That's a good expression. It's kind of followed up. It's odd that that is so well rendered and then it's followed up by Dick looking very silly i guess like responding to that by saying i'm in california it's interesting because i don't think it's a bad panel but he looks so different than he did in that michael bear stuff and that he's supposed to be the character who's the through line in that like he's in his pajama pants which means that it is the current era dick grayson but he's got his hair plastered like a shitty politician there it is a very mid-80s look on dick when he should be looking more late 80s there Mm. i think my final panel and and probably my my total favorite one is on the previous page to that and it's actually really similar to the one i called out on page 13 where he's saying stop it Mm. and it's the one where he's continuing to fall and you another section of his dream nightmare escape and uh he's screaming the word mal for mal Mm -hmm. duncan and um there's these increasingly distorted mal faces in the background yeah that is a beautiful panel or series of five panels maybe he creates kind of a through line through the panels because he's busting through the borders of them as he falls it's a really interestingly laid out piece and uh yeah those mal duncans look creepy as fuck Mm -hmm. yeah and i mean there's 66 pages in this thing so they're all really well done that's just some of the artwork that's in this but uh there's a ton of great shit in there yeah, I cut myself off after after those because you could just keep going. Yeah. Well, Corey, let's take this party to the Bozone. I lost my phone, so I had to do it manual. <laughs> it wasn't until like my second or third read through of this comic that I found it either. But 
but yeah we got a natty b yeah it was written in the like three billion other words there's a real where where's waldo of the word bozo in this issue <laughs> many of which were insults a ton of insults and different types of insults from different characters we have a lot of self-flagellation going on by dick we also have other people flagellating dick God, hey there's got to be a better way to say that <laughs> Anyway, you look at it. There's a lot of dick flagellation. <laughs> Agreed. But first, let's take a look at the Natty B. I believe that is directed at Antithesis Malduncan as Dick is freaking out about Gargoyle merging into the uh, weird naked bald dude. Malduncan says, Dick, snap out of it. That Antithesis bozo's gonna blow this scene. And us with it, unless my hunch is right. Mm -hmm. So that's the Natty B. But my God, there are a lot of insults because Bromstick is just peppering Dick with insults throughout their trip into Limbo. And in some interesting and creative ways. I think one of my favorites being the gag tombstone that he produces. Mm -hmm. Like, man... You really got to hate somebody to get a novelty insult tombstone carved for them. And that is exactly what Gargoyle appears to have done. Here lies a failure. Richard Grayson. Failure to Titans. To Batman. To Jason. As human or hero. Unfit for the task. A total non-entity. A blank in a mask. Bang. That is a harsh zinger does make me kind of want to visit some graveyards because I would imagine there are a few roast tombstones out there. Oh yeah, there's got to be at least one. I'd kind of like to see them. Mm. I learned a new word in the insult. I wonder if it's the same one. Is it Tyro or Tyro? Tyro, I believe it is. Yeah, I had not heard that before. A novice or a... Beginner. Yeah, that was describing Jason Todd. I thought that was interesting. Mm -hmm. One to Jason, and I, I think one to Dick also. Oh, I didn't realize it propped up twice. Yeah, we had a two Tyro issue. Man, once you get your phone back, we got to figure out a sound effect for that. <laughs> I'm a big fan of Cretinous Reject. That is one of the initial tirades that Bromstick Gargoyle delivers. And you, Cretinous Reject, it has also brought you here into the hollow of darkness of your own soul, where your shattered, pathetic delusions will haunt you forever. What a zinger! So much hatred. Yeah, I liked it when he uh, called Dick a uh, ever-important sniveler. Ooh, that's a good one. But Dick also delivered some zingers of his own, and not just to himself. Maybe my favorite in this is on page 8. And it is a simple moment that really takes a 1960s scene and recontextualizes it in the 80s. After the Teen Titans in their first adventure, save Hatton Corner, defeat Mr. Twister slash Bromstick slash the Gargoyle slash kind of antithesis, but not really. Mm -hmm. The mayor gives a little speech that he ends by saying, I'm sure that Batman, Aquaman, and The Flash would not appreciate them staying up past their bedtime on a school night. Just kidding, Sonny. I don't think that's verbatim from Brave and the Bold 54, but it's close enough. But you get Robin's thought bubble in that, which is just the word, yeah, right, butthead. 
Oh, I thought that was Aqualad's thought bubble. Was it, I thought it was Aqualad thinking the mayor was a butthead. Well, I can see that because you do see Aqualad have a thoughtful expression on his face and the thought bubble says butthead under it. Mm-hmm. But I don't think we are privy to Aqualad's thoughts in this because it's Dick's reminiscences. So I had to give Dick the credit for that butthead. But uh, I was like, yeah, that guy is a butthead. Yeah, I like that one. We had another one from Dick directed at uh, at Mr. Twister, called him an old wart. <laughs> Good Pretty <one>. gross. <laughs> we also get maybe an unintentional zinger that I think also counts as kind of an in-universe at least timestamp. It is during one of the instances where Raven's emotional manipulation of Wally West is being excused by Mm -hmm. Dick and possibly by Raven, because I think she's helping get into his brain there, along with Lilith. And everybody is Freddy Kruegering this dude in this comic book, because you have Bromstick is up in there. Maybe the antithesis is in his brain, too. They're invading Mm -hmm. his dreams, taking him to limbo. Mm -hmm. Raven and Lilith hop into his dreams, which takes them to limbo, but they can't affect things quite as much. And then Jericho just hops into his body, too, which may or may not do something that is really difficult to tell. I love that at the end where the whole thing is like Mal's chained up and Dick's like, I have to do this on my own. And he punches Gargoyle out. And then you get to the end. and You're like, but wait, you did that. You weren't on your own. That was Jericho (laughs) making your body jump up and punch him. Was it, though? I really don't know, because it's tough. They keep doing these things where it's like Jericho hops into somebody's body while something else is happening, and then they're all like, wow, you were a big help, Jericho. Thank goodness you were able to do that. Is he just the kid from the Shake and Bake commercial? <laughs> is is Jericho the Shake and Bake kid where he's just like, and I helped? It's like, did you? I think so. You think he did help, or you think he's the Shake and Bake kid? Oh, I think some of each in this issue, I think it's a shake and bake uh, situation. The shake and bake kid is one of those that sounds like kind of a cool like uh, nickname, but uh, you could also use it as an insult. Oh, yeah. Just means you're kind of, what's the expression? You taught it to me the other day. Gold bricking. Yeah, that's a fun one. I know I told you my favorite of those ever was when uh, me and Lee nicknamed Guy Duke, uh, which he was like, oh, that's a cool nickname. But we didn't tell him it was short for Marmaduke because he thought he was people. Oh, oh, Marmaduke. I'd put the shake and bake kid in that caption. If somebody like was like, oh, we call him the shake and bake kid. I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. Oh, am I an old West gunfighter? All right. Yeah, I am pretty fast. He's just high all the time on like little crumbs that are left over at the <laughs> bottom of the weed thing. Yeah, either way, it's a cool nickname. <laughs> cool, cooler than the real reason, which is that I think that I helped. Mm, good job. Anyway, Raven's talking to, to Dick. Dick just delivers a little zinger apropos of nothing, like an unprovoked zinger to Kid Flash, where he says, at least Batman taught me to make decisions with my brains instead of my libido. And to deliver that singer to Kid Flash when at the time Kid Flash was being emotionally manipulated by Raven. And Raven's there, and you notice she doesn't pipe up and say, Actually, that was my bad. Like, she's complicit in that unprovoked drive-by zinging as well. Yeah, that wasn't cool. I think what that is attempting to do is to tie that into a post-crisis era where at least in Justice League Europe... Kid Flash was, or Wally West, who was now just regular Flash, 
was being written as a libidinous asshole. It was a relatively brief period of time where that was one of his defining characteristics, but it was right around now. So that could be a backdoor timestamp there. Mm. I, I think a lot of people in the late 90s, early 2000s got uh, backdoor timestamps. Just a lower back tattoo. Yeah, tattoo. Mm -hmm. Good for that. <laughs> what kind of timestamp? Just like time to party in like a gothic script? Yeah, I th I think if it's in the gothic script, that does make it a, uh, a little timestamp on your back door. <laughs> lower, lower back tattoo of gothic script says party time. I told you, uh, an acquaintance of mine, Shantos, had a backdoor timestamp right there that said uh, night moves. <laughs> he was just a big Bob Seger fan. Oh my gosh, that is commitment. What makes it better is he really does look like a Bob Seger fan. Wow, wow. <laughs> Any other zingers you wanted to talk about? I guess uh, maybe the one I'll part with, because he already said Cretinous Reject, which was a good one, was when um, Batman in his dream calls Dick an arrogant little twerp. Yeah. Zing. Indeed. Well, now that we've covered the Bozone, let's transition this into uh, timestamps, be they backdoor or otherwise. What timestamps were you able to find in this issue? I just maybe a slight disambiguation when we say backdoor timestamp. It's we're like uh, I don't know a few inches north. Yeah, <laughs> above the low rise jeans. Sure. Okay. There was a few, I think, but the one that really stood out to me was at the very beginning when Dick gets back from his super weird and super creepy dress-up date with Starfire, who might or might not know that that's him or not. She definitely knows. She makes reference to it later on. Oh, thank goodness. He has a, a tummy ache, and so he, he makes himself some Alka-Seltzer. And they show it very distinctively going plop, plop, fizz, fizz, which was uh, all over the TV at that time as their, um, their ad campaign. Mm -hmm. It was a long-running slogan for them, because I think it was like from the 60s till at least that point. Hell, it might still be their slogan. I don't consume a lot of uh, Alka-Seltzer-related media these days, but uh, yeah, I noticed that as well. We talked about a Golden Eagles California surfer talk, which I think did recontextualize the Teen Titans West Coast adventure as happening in the 80s instead of the 70s. So there was that. And yeah, that brief window when Wally West's, one of his defining characteristics was that he was a real horn dog. Mm. Other than that, I really wasn't able to come up with all that much. No, those are, those are good. Okay. Corey, every issue of a Teen Titans comic has a Beast Boy, the worst of Teen Titans until Danny fucking Chase showed up, and an Aqualad, the greatest of Teen Titans, period. In this issue, who did you have as your Aqualad and who did you have as your Beast Boy? So... I know I think I am supposed to choose Dick because the issue's all about Dick. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, yeah, he fought through it with little help from his friends. True. Mm -hmm. Still on the fence about that costume thing and <laughs> if that's his deal or Starfire's deal. <laughs> so um, I went with Karen Bumblebee for alerting Lil, who alerted Starfire to get Raven and Joey to get into his dream and help Dick be successful. Good job, Bumblebee. When everyone gets into Dick's dream, do they also have to get out of his car? Oh, 
there's a timestamp. I told you I was by the ocean. I didn't happen to mention that it was Billy Ocean. <sighs> yeah, no, I think uh, Karen kicking off the Rube Goldberg device of Robin's eventual emancipation from limbo is a good call. Shit. Actually, I guess I should have picked Mal, because if he hadn't zipped off to limbo, then Karen wouldn't have freaked out. Well, except for that, like, <laughs> his being kidnapped and brought to limbo. Dick wouldn't have been in any trouble if he hadn't sleepwalked and tooted his horn and opened up the door to Limbo. So I don't think you could count that as in the plus category for him. Yeah, that's true. Even though he was sleepwalking, that was a bad move. Yeah. Okay. What'd you have? I think Wonder Girl is in contention just because she's so rad that even people who hate the Teen Titans are like, yeah, but she did a good job. Mm-hmm. But I ultimately, I think, went with Cyborg as my Aqualad this issue because he was the Titan who had the presence of mind to send Beast Boy home at the end of the issue. <laughs> like, they're all hanging out. Beast Boy has been invited to participate in the crime-fighting, adventure-rescuing dick part of the comic book. But as soon as that's over, they're like, Oh, now we're just hanging out as friends. Sorry, you're off the team. You're not allowed to hang out with us as friends. Get out. It did seem like an adult-only party thing where I didn't recognize the bottles that they were drinking from as being free sodas or perhaps even a beer. They are in a liminal space because they are shaped like old glass cola bottles, but they are brown instead of green. So... There's some evidence that they might be drinking like old timey sodas or they might be drinking beers. Could be either one. It is weird because in the 80s, I don't think they were doing yet the nostalgia like old timey glass bottles. So maybe mm -hmm. those are some vintage free sodas that Wonder Girl had lying around. Probably didn't have enough for uh, Beast Boy, so... Cyborg yeah. was like, well, you got, you got homework to do, buddy. Sorry. Sorry, you're not allowed to hang out with us in social situations and in social situations only. <laughs> so, yeah, that was why Cyborg was my choice. Conversely, who did you have as your beast boy? Well, for ostensibly being invited to the Dick had a bad dream but made it through his party and not showing up, DFC, because he is the fucking worst. What a little jerk. You know, I had Mal with a question mark after it written down, because he really did do a terrible job. I had Hawk with a question mark, because anytime Hawk is in a comic, he is at least in contention. Dick did do some infanticide in this issue. And, you know, Jericho was the shake-and-bake kid insisting that he helped. But I also went with Danny fucking Chase, because he is in this comic book, and he is Danny fucking Chase, and he is the worst Teen Titan. Very good. Nice to have some backups, though. It's, I was a little bit lazy. I mean, I was right, but I was a little lazy. <laughs> so, thanks for making the effort. No problem. Sartorially speaking, which elements of fashion in this issue did you find most worthy of note? So we talked about it a bunch already, but Goth Donna on page 14. I mean, it's not new clothing, but the way her hair and I don't know if it's makeup or shadows or what is drawn is just... Unique. We'd never seen her like that before, and I thought that was pretty darn cool. To me, the real standout in terms of fashion, on page 34 is where we get the first shot of Flamebird's outfit in its entirety, and the tattered cape 
that looks like maybe it has been on fire at some point really ties the whole look together in such a fun and interesting way. And I just really love that look Mm -hmm. like that with the goggles and the bright colors. It just sets her up as a very enthusiastic kind of agent of chaos type character in a way that I think really works and is fun. Yeah, good call. Um, Let's see. More mundane fashion. Uh, I guess Starfire's, um, I guess that's called a tulip dress. The dress that she goes on a date was Arnie slash Dick. It's a pink dress with white trim. Mm. Very fashionable. Looks pretty cool. She gets back to her apartment. She bumps into Lilith, who has, maybe this would have been a timestamp, ridiculously short shorts. Yeah. I don't think that's as much of a timestamp in comic books. I think at any point you would see most female characters wearing ridiculously short shorts. Yeah, I'm not really calling them out as a fashion highlight, more just a, whoa, that's yep. a, that's noticeable. It, but the reason I say timestamp is because it reminded me of the Do You Dare Wear Short Shorts ads for Nair. Oh, yes. The hair removal cream, mm-hmm. which is, <laughs> I've never used it, but I imagine it's an awful experience. I don't know. It doesn't sound like a lot of fun, but honestly, most leg hair removals that I can imagine seem really, really unpleasant. I did shave my legs one time. It was for a Halloween costume, and uh, it wasn't that bad, but uh, it wasn't pleasant. And I was so hesitant to shave my face when I first started getting facial hair because I had seen my sister just hack her legs all to pieces trying to shave her legs when, when she was a teen. And gosh, I know one of those like hair removal things would just like pull them all up by the roots as it would drag along your leg. Ugh. Mm-hmm. I don't know why these ads are stuck in my head. I think that product was called the Epilady. It was. Good job, Corey. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, no, that short shirt, the Nair commercial, though, like that is absolutely like that has been stuck in my head for solid, what, 25 years at this point? Mm-hmm. Yep. At least. That's, that's, that's what that uh, scene with Lilith reminded me of. Well, speaking of Lilith, I also like her blue and white stripey shirt that she was wearing back in the 70s or 80s or whenever the uh, Teen Titans West adventure took place. Other outfits from that era, both Golden Eagle's superhero outfit. I like his helmet a lot. It's cool looking. It's got like a full eagle, not just the head of the eagle that turns into wings for the mask. That's really cool looking. But his civilian duds, he's wearing a Hawaiian shirt that is unbuttoned to mid-chest. Pretty cool. Pretty cool indeed. Got some nice feathered hair there too. Yep, very 70s, 80s. And we talked about Harold's gear a bit already. I think we got a slight revamping of Karen Beecher's uh, Bumblebee's costume as well. It just looks a little bit more streamlined and like it doesn't have like a butt stinger anymore which is kind of a shame i liked that but uh Mm -hmm. still a good costume sure any other fashion well i already talked about it a little bit but um the kind of ho-hum herald costume that mel duncan gets although uh bumblebee loves that hood (laughs) she does every time you say herald i think you're saying herald and it makes me think of my grandfather harold hubbard (laughs) Harold. It makes me think that perhaps Bumblebee should change her code name to Zelma. Jesus Christ and four hands round Zelma. Oh no no, Corey, it was Jesus H Christ and four hands round Zelma. The H is important because as a child I always thought it stood for Harold. But yeah, that was an expression my grandfather would often say. 
Uh, Jesus H. Christ and four hands round Selma. Of course the oil companies are keeping the technology of the electric cars under wraps. Mutt and Jeff, one lies, the other one swears to it. Pretty good. Corey, who did you have as your president of the drama club in this issue? Which character acted, or rather overacted, in the most dramatic fashion? I'm going to go with uh, Lilith. She has a manic look on her face, and yeah, I, I get it. Stakes is high and everything, but we haven't seen her for a super long time, and I don't know. It seemed a little weird that she was so freaked out that Dick was having a bad dream. <laughs> That's fair. From her perspective, it has does have to be tough to tell that something else is happening, at least initially. Yeah. She sees that he's sleeping hard and having a bad dream. She's like, well, me and Raven better get to the bottom of this and hop in his noodle. Start fucking Dennis quading it up into his dreamscape. Also, like, did she have her old roommate keys? Is that how she got into Starfire's apartment? Like, that's going to be weird when you just show up and somebody's hanging out in your apartment and your door was locked. It's tough in general to figure out what's going on with Lilith because we don't get a clear view of what her retconned situation is. When we last saw her in continuity, she had been a god, and I guess she's not that anymore because the whole Titans thing got redone and now they lived in space. And she says she has somebody waiting for her at home. But we also hear that something unfortunate happened with Ganark, and that's the only mention of Ganark that we get in this, which is, is another thing. Like, he and Mr. Jupiter, the characters that seem to have gotten almost completely excised from continuity, he was a member of the Teen Titans for, like, a solid, like, 12, 13 issues, and now he is relegated to, like, oh, poor Ganark. Anyway, we definitely get the impression that he probably died or something. But she's got somebody that she's got to go home to, and she's not a god, and she has keys to everybody's apartment. That's really all we know about Lilith. Yep. And I gave her the nod for president of the drama club because of the way that, you know, as soon as Starfire walks in, Lilith turns around, grabs her by the biceps, probably shaking her. (laughs) Yeah. It's a shame that Starfire's costume doesn't have lapels. Mm -hmm. She totally would have grabbed her by the lapels. I think that is a very solid choice. I had a couple that I was choosing from. Dick really seems to be going through a lot of shit, but he's also in his dreams for most of it, so it's tough to tell what part of the reactions may be overreacting, and it's all done with dream logic anyway, so who the fuck knows. I actually ended up going with Gargoyle. The look on his gargoyle face when he is freaking out and is like, It's me, the Gargoyle! Wahoo! Oh, what a goofy, goofy kisser he's got. It is just quite a thing. I guess points against him getting this is, much to my disappointment, his magic ring is no longer shaped like his own head. Mm -hmm. What's even the fucking point? Search me. But uh, yeah, he, he was my choice for president of the drama club. Just that reveal of him. It was certainly very surprising. And also just that look on his face. He was going through some shit. Mm-hmm. Well, Corey, I think it's time we had ourselves a Battle of the Band Names. What band names were you able to find in the text of this issue? 
I think the first one I've got is probably there's country elements, like the really sad kind of country with pedal steel and stuff, but also like a dark reverby goth element to it. And they are called Netherworld of Heartache. Oh, Corey, that is good. Oh, I didn't make it up, but it was just in there. Yeah, but you found it. I didn't find that one. I had a lot of trouble finding one in this, despite, or perhaps because of just how many words there were, I had a lot of trouble picking out band names that weren't already band names. Mm. I was shocked to find that New Kids on the Block is already a band. Oh, no. When I saw that, I was like, oh, were they a band yet at that point? And I think like 89 Summer was probably pretty close to the height of their popularity. But Dick does describe the new Teen Titans as the new kids on the block. And I was like, oh, huh. What a young JC Chase says just uh, reading this comic. No, Corey, that's in sync. Oh, I always get those mixed up. You're thinking of Jordan McIntyre. <laughs> okay. Again. <laughs> I'll tell you this much, you weren't thinking of Danny Wood. Nobody ever has. Zing! I zinged one of the new kids on the block, Corey. Oh, did you? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> the other band that I, I was genuinely surprised was already a band name, and it sucks because I already had like a pretty good idea for not necessarily what kind of music they made, but what they could have as an album cover. Mm -hmm. Fall Prey. Ooh. And I thought they could have like a, a, a pumpkin with a knife in it. Mm-hmm. Is like fall prey. What kind of music? Probably new metal. Mm, mm -hmm. Screamy. Screamy, but like maybe they write some songs about pumpkin spice lattes and a nice autumnal day because <laughs> it's fall prey. Yeah, no, I got, I got you. you. Know? I got you. You know, well, it was tough for me to tell because you weren't laughing uproariously. <sighs> so that actually is already a band, though. I don't know if they are specifically autumnal themed. It seems like a missed opportunity if they aren't. Mm -hmm. So the only name that I actually came up with for a band in this was one we've already mentioned in the Bozone section, the Cretinous Rejects. Ooh, that's pretty good. Kind of boring, but that sounds like a straight ahead punk band to me. Okay. I've got another one that I, I think they probably played shows together at the Satyricon around this time in Portland. And uh, this is another punk band called Wretched Farce. Ooh, Wretched Farce is good. I was struck by the vehemence with which Gargoyle said that when he did. Because he really was just like, this is no joke. It's a wretched farce. I was like, man, this guy fucking hates Tartuffe. Mm -hmm. No emboldened servants around this guy. Wretched farce. And I, I have one more offering. I think it's a like a rapper, solo rapper. Or maybe it's like a rapper and a DJ uh, situation, like a idea and abilities kind of thing. Mm -hmm. He or she goes by the moniker Insignificant Miscreant. That's pretty good. Mm -hmm. So, okay, we've got... What was your first choice again? The first one was Netherworld of Heartache. Yeah, I gotta say, for me, Netherworld of Heartache, Country Goth, I think that is my choice. All right, cowboy hats and eyeliner, here we go. All right, netherworld of heartache it is. Well, Corey, for once, we know exactly what Aqualad was up to. Rescuing Hat and Corners. Rescuing Hat and Corners, reliving the trauma of living in a nightclub with Speedy. The death of Aqua Girl. And appearing three times on the cover of a comic book. So, uh, 
good for him. Seems like an eventful whenever the heck this is. <laughs> an eventful past 25 years, I guess. Nice hustle. Thanks so much for uh, doing this. I had a really good time covering this comic book with you. I did, too. You know, I got to admit, I was daunted when I saw how big it was, but I enjoyed the ride and uh, I enjoyed talking about it with you. Likewise. We'll be back next week with a regular-sized issue, which I'm looking forward to, frankly, <laughs> of The Defenders. And, uh, yeah, we'll be back in two weeks to find out if Dick is still doing weird costumed role-playing stuff with Starfire. Do you think he still kept his costume from when he was Joe Walsh? Yeah, he keeps all that shit. Do you see his makeup tray and everything? He has a serious system. He serious really getup. Yeah, he's a, he's a regular Dana Carvey master of disguise. <laughs> Never actually seen that movie, have you? No, I just, when you said that, I just thought of Church Lady. Yeah, I bet Dick dresses up like the church lady sometimes. It's a good disguise. Yeah. Wonder if Starfire's into that outfit. If you'd like to get into touch with us, we can be reached at ttwasteland at gmail.com or at tightenupthedefense P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon 97294. We'll also be up on uh, various places on the socials media. I did recently post, by the time this episode goes up, uh, it'll be a little bit old, but you can probably still find it on there, a uh, picture of the panel where uh, Overmind makes the sound effect, but mm. that's been getting some traction. Classic. Love a good butt pick. I, I guess you could say, <laughs> follow me on social media for some great butt pics. <laughs> and hey, <sighs> if you can't find us there, there's one more place you can look. And that is deep inside your heart. Corey, what are you going to be doing in people's hearts this week? I'm going to be uh, perfecting my pina colada. Instead of ice cubes, or at least uh, a proportion of the ice cubes for the blended version, I'm going to use um, chunks of ripe frozen pineapple, maybe that I grilled before freezing. Whoa, that's some fancy ass shit, Corey. Thank you. You going to put on some arm garters for that? I don't have any. Oh, I'm sorry. See if I can find some. I think you're going to need to either wax your mustache or get some arm garters if you're going to make a drink that has frozen grilled pineapple in it. Nah, I'm going to epilate my mustache. Oh, God. Corey, don't do that. That sounds horrifying. Well, you said wax. That doesn't sound like fun either for a mustache. No, oh, not... no. The old timey way. Yeah, I got it. Corey. Okay. Anyway, it sounds like a really fucking tasty drink. I would look forward to that. Me? I'm going to be uh, going and looking for some more scented candles to burn the lids of so that I can uh, <laughs> keep your heart warm and toasty. Oh, man. It's going to be so festive in there, smelling like candle lids and pina coladas. <laughs> I think that's a Jimmy Buffett album, isn't it? <laughs> oh, probably. Candle lids and pina coladas. Pretty good. If you would like to support the show financially, you can check us out at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. If you do, you get access to a whole bunch of bonus material. There is the podcast What the Duck, a podcast most foul, but with a W because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show. That is the Howard the Duck podcast that I co-host with my wife, Lisa. And there's a whole bunch of bonus videos and podcasts and other stuff up there as a thank you to our donors because you guys make it possible for us to keep doing the show. So thank you so much for that. Indeed. Corey, what's a way people can support the show in a non-financial way? So uh, a couple ways that people can support the show are talking to people about the show. 
Mm-hmm. And um, and leaving a review for the show. So wherever you get your podcast, probably a, a button for reviews. So you could get in there and type something like, I really like this podcast. It makes me laugh. Mm. Does it also make you uh, live and love? Is that another Billy Ocean thing? I don't think Billy Ocean wrote those signs. Maybe he did. I don't know what he's been up to lately. Oh, like those signs like on the, on the wall? Yeah. That maybe have some macrame around them or something? Corey, those signs may be on the wall, but if you ask me, they're off the wall. Live, laugh, and love. How wacky can you get? So just type all that in your browser and hit click the five stars button and good to go. Yeah, I think that's a great call. Another thing you can do is uh, maybe get some custom magnets made and put them on the side of your panel van that say, uh, tighten up the defense. Big letters. People will ask you about them. And then when they ask them about them, just run and take the magnets off. You'll be like, what are you talking about? And then they'll be forced to do their own research. Huh? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's fun to do your own research on things that are largely <laughs> inconsequential. <laughs> there are some important uh... things that maybe you should let professional researchers do the research on and then listen to and believe them. What are you talking about? I... Everybody that is wondering where those panel van magnets got off to is going to do some sort of peer-reviewed thing. Yeah, I would imagine so. (laughs) That's how that works, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Also, you should just do some peer reviews. Just look at your peers and just go like, uh... Nice haircut. Good hustle. That guy's a cretinous reject. Oh, no, if they're a cretinous reject, they're not your peer. Because you're better than that listener. Yeah. And also, I mean, just if you don't have anything nice to say, like... You could write it down in your journal. Yeah. Like write a letter, but don't send it. But then what if uh, you put it in your desk drawer and then you sell your desk or you donate it to an auction and you forget it's in there. And then Jessica Fletcher buys it at an auction and she opens it because the drawer is stuck and she finds the letter and then you get murdered. That was in an episode of Murder, She Wrote that I saw. Uh huh. So yep, he had a so. letter that they didn't mail, and then it was in a desk, and then it got delivered, and then there was a murder. Yeah. So after you write it, don't leave it in the desk. And and also, if you're doing it electronically, don't actually put the email address of the person that you're writing the nasty letter to in there because oh. you could accidentally send it. Have you ever actually sent one of those? No, no, I haven't. But I I know somebody that has, Ooh. and so that's that's why I I put that in there. Would I know them, or did you know them in Canada and they went to another school? It was work-related. You wouldn't know them. Okay. It was at summer camp. Yeah, that's what I figured. <laughs> okay. A friend. A friend of a friend. <laughs> but boy, did they regret it. Yeah. Especially when they got home and it turned out that, that what they thought was an email was actually a rat. Huh? That's like an urban legend uh, that happened to a friend of a friend. They brought a dog home from Mexico, and it turned out it was a rat. Oh, jeez. Yeah. That was hard to follow. Sorry. Going to need Angela Lansbury to <laughs> No, that would be bad, because that then there would have been a murder. Bye! Bye! <laughs> and they knew it.